You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. Are now entering the Sapphire Planet. You are now in the Sapphire Planet. Within the British Army, British Army officers who initially trained at the company's own academy at the Atisco Military Seminary always outranked Indians no matter how long the Indians served. The highest rank to which an Indian soldier could aspire was Subadar Major, effectively a senior subaltern equivalent. Promotion for both British and Indian soldiers was strictly by seniority, so Indian soldiers rarely reached the commission ranks of Jamadar or Subadar before they were middle-aged at best. They received no training in administration or leadership to make them independent of their British officers. During the wars against the French and their allies in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, the East Indian Company's armies were used to seize the colonial possessions of other European nations, including the islands of Reunion and Meridus. There was a systematic disrespect in the company for the spreading of Protestantism, although it fostered respect for Hindu and Muslim, castes, and other ethnic groups. The growth of tension between the East Indian Company and the local religious and cultural groups grew in the 19th century as the Protestant revival grew in Great Britain. These tensions erupted at the Indian Rebellion of 1857 and the company ceased to exist when the company dissolved through the East India Stock Dividend Redemption Act of 1873. But before that, 
there was an opium trade. In the 18th century, Britain had a huge trade deficit with the Qing dynasty in China. And so in 1773, the company created a British monopoly on opium, buying in Bengal, India, by prohibiting the licensing of the opium farmers and private cultivators. The monopoly system established in 1799 continued with minimal changes until 1947. As the opium trade was illegal in China, company ships could not carry opium to China. So the opium produced in Bengal was sold in Calcutta on the condition that it be sent to China. Despite the Chinese ban on opium imports, reaffirmed in 1799 by the Xiaoying Emperor, the drug was smuggled into China from Bengal by traffickers and agency houses such as Jardine, Matheson and & Company, and Dent and & Company, in amounts averaging 900 tons a year. The proceeds of the drug smugglers landed their cargoes at Linton Island, were paid into the company's factory at Canton, and by 1825, most of the money needed to buy tea in China was raised by the illegal opium trade. The company established a group of trading settlements settled in the Straits of Malacca, called the Straits Settlements, in 1826, to protect its trade route to China and to combat local piracy. The settlements were also used as penal settlements for Indian civilians and military prisoners. In 1838, with the amount of smuggled opium entering China approaching 1,400 tons a year, the Chinese imposed a death penalty for opium smuggling and sent a special imperial commissioner, Lin Zexu, to curb smuggling. This resulted in the First Opium War from 1839 to 1842. After the war, Hong Kong Island was ceded to Britain under the Treaty of Nanking, and the Chinese market opened to the opium traders of Britain and other nations. The Jardines and Apcar and Company dominated the trade, although P&O also tried to take a share. The Second Opium War, fought by Britain and France against China, lasted from 1856 until 1860 and led to the Treaty of Tencent, which legalized the importation of opium. Legalization stimulated domestic Chinese opium production and increased the importation of opium from Turkey and from Persia. This increased competition for the Chinese market led to India reducing its opium output 
and diversifying exports. Official British trade was conducted through the auspices of the British East Indian Company, which held a royal charter for trade in the Far East. The British East India Company gradually came to dominate Sino-European trade from its position in India. From its inception of the Canton system in 1757, trade in goods from China was extremely lucrative for European and Chinese merchants alike. However, foreign traders were only permitted to do business through a body of Chinese merchants known as the Kohong and were restricted to Canton. Foreigners could only live in one of 13 factories near Shamin Island and were not allowed to enter much less live or trade in any other part of China. While silk and porcelain drove trade through their popularity in the West, an insatiable demand for tea existed in Britain. However, only silver was accepted in payment by China, which resulted in a chronic trade deficit. From the mid 17th century, around 28 million kilograms of silver were received by China, principally from European powers, in exchange for Chinese goods. Britain had been on the gold standard since the 18th century, so it had to purchase silver from continental Europe and Mexico to supply the Chinese appetite for silver. Attempts by a British embassy, a Dutch mission, Russia's Golovikin in 1805, and the British again in 1816 to negotiate access to Chinese markets were all vetoed by successive Chinese emperors. By 1817, the British realized they could reduce the trade deficit as well as turn the Indian colony profitable by counter-trading in narcotic Indian opium. The Qing administration initially tolerated opium importation because it created indirect tax on Chinese subjects while allowing the British to double tea exports from China to England thereby profiting the monopoly on tea exports held by the Qing Imperial Treasury and its agents. Opium was produced in traditional cotton-growing regions of India under British East Indian Company monopoly in Bengal and in the princely states of Malwa outside the company's control. Both areas had been hard hit by the introduction of factory-produced cotton cloth, which used cotton grown in Egypt. The opium was auctioned in Calcutta on the condition that it be shipped by British traders to China. Opium 
as a medicinal ingredient was documented in texts as early as the Tang Dynasty, but its recreational use was limited and there were laws against its abuse. British sales of opium began in 1781 and sales increased fivefold between 1821 and 1837. The East Indian Company's ships brought all their cargoes to the islands off the coast, especially Lunenton Island, where Chinese traders, with fast and well-armed small boats, took the goods for island distribution, paying for them with silver and causing a shift in its flow. By the year 1820, just when the Queen Treasury needed to finance the suppression of rebellions. The flow of silver had reversed. Chinese merchants were now exporting it to pay for opium. The imperial court debated whether or how to end the open opium trade, but its efforts were complicated by local officials, including the governor gentle general of Canton who profited greatly from the bribes and taxes involved. A turning point came in the year 1834. Reformers in England who had advocated free trade had succeeded in ending the monopoly of the British East Indian Company under the Charter Act of the previous year, finally opening British trade to private entrepreneurs many of whom joined in the lucrative trade of opium to China. American merchants then got involved and began to introduce opium from Turkey into Chinese markets. This was of lesser quality, but cheaper to produce, and competition between and among British and American merchants drove down the price of opium, increasing sales. In late 1834, to accommodate the revocation of the East Indian Company's monopoly, the British sent Lord William John Napier to Macau along with John Francis Davis and Sir George Bess Robinson, second baronet as the British superintendents of trade in China. Napier was instructed to obey Chinese regulations communicate directly with the Chinese authorities, superintend trade pertaining to the contraband trade of opium, and to surveys China's coastline. Napier tried to circumvent the restrictive Canton system that forbade direct contact with Chinese officials by attempting to send a letter directly to the Viceroy of Canton. The Viceroy refused to accept it, and on September 2nd of that year, an edict was issued which closed trade. Other nations, such as the Americans, prospered through their continued peaceful trade with China, but the British were all told to leave Canton for either Wampoa or Macau. Lord Napier had to return to Macau 
where he died a few days later. After Lord Napier's death, Captain Charles Elliot received the King's commission in 1836 to continue Napier's work of conciliating with the Chinese. By the year 1838, the British were selling roughly 1,400 tons of opium per year to China. Legalization of the opium trade was the subject of ongoing debate within the Chinese administration, but it was repeatedly rejected, and as of 1838, the government sentenced native drug traffickers to death. In 1839, the Daogong Emperor appointed scholar official Lin Zexu to the post of Special Imperial Commissioner with the task of eradicating the opium trade. Lin sent an open letter to Queen Victoria questioning the moral reasoning of the British government, citing what he understood to be a strict prohibition of the trade within Great Britain. Lin questioned how it could then profit from the drug in China. He wrote, your majesty has not before been thus officially notified, and you may plead ignorance of the severity of our laws, but I now give my assurance that we mean to cut this harmful drug forever. The letter never reached the queen, with one source suggesting that it was lost in transit. Lin pledged that nothing would divert him from his missions. If the traffic in opium were not stopped a few decades from now, we shall not only be without soldiers to resist the enemy, but also in want of silver to provide an army. Lin banned the sale of opium and demanded that all supplies of the drug be surrendered to the Chinese authorities. He also closed the channel to Canton, effectively holding British traders hostage in the city, as well as seizing opium supplies in the factories. Chinese troops boarded British ships in international waters outside Chinese jurisdictions, where their cargo was still illegal, and destroyed the opium aboard. The British superintendent of trade in China, Charles Elliott, at first protested in order, ordered the opium ships to flee and prepare for battle. Lin then quarantined the foreign dealers in their warehouses and kept them from communicating with their ships in part. British Superintendent Charles Elliott got the British traders to agree to hand over their opium stock with the promise of eventual compensation for their loss from the British government. While this amounted to a tacit acknowledgement that the British government did not disapprove of the trade, it also placed a huge liability on the exchequer. This promise and inability of the British government to pay it without causing a political storm was important for the subsequent British offensive. 
During April and May of 1839, British and American dealers surrendered 20,000 chests and 200 sacks of opium, which was publicly destroyed on the beach outside of Gangzhou. Lin was able to sustain stability and prohibition policy for many months. After the opium was surrendered, trade was restarted on the strict condition that no more drugs would be smuggled into China. Lin demanded that all merchants sign bonds promising not to deal in opium under penalty of death. The British officially opposed signing of the bond, but some merchants who did not trade opium, such as Oliphant and Company, were willing to sign. Financial Troubles Though the East Indian Company was becoming increasingly bold and ambitious in putting down resisting states, it became clear that the company was incapable of governing the vast expanse of the captured territories. The Bengal Famine of 1770, in which one-third of the local population died, caused distress in Britain. Military and administrative costs mounted beyond control in British-administered regions in Bengal because of the ensuing drop in labor productivity. At the same time, there was commercial stagnation and trade depression throughout Europe. The directors of the company attempted to avert bankruptcy by appealing to Parliament for financial help. This led to the passing of the Tea Act in 1773, which gave the company greater autonomy in running its trade in the American colonies and allowing it an exemption for tea import duties, which its colonial competitors were required to pay. When the American colonists and tea merchants were told of this act, they boycotted the company tea. Although the price of tea had dropped because of the act, it also validated the Townshed Acts, setting the precedent for the king to impose additional taxes in the future. The arrival of tax-exempt company tea undercutting the local merchants, triggered the Boston Tea Party in the province of Massachusetts Bay, one of the major events leading up to the American Revolution. East India Company Act 1773. By the Regulating Act of 1773, later known as the East India Company Act 1773. The Parliament of Great Britain imposed a series of administrative and economic reforms. This clearly established Parliament's sovereignty and ultimate control over the company. The Act recognized the company's political functions and clearly established that the 
acquisition of sovereignty by the subjects of the crown on its behalf of the crown and not in its own right. Despite stiff resistance from the East Indian lobby in Parliament and from the company's shareholders, the act passed. It introduced substantial governmental control and allowed British India to formally under the control of the crown, but leased back to the company at 40,000 pounds for two years. Under the Act's most important provisions, a governing council composed of five members was created in Calcutta. The three members nominated by Parliament and representing the government's interests could and invariably would outvote the two company members. The council was headed by Warren Hastings, the incumbent governor, who became the first governor general general of Bengal. With an ill-defined authority over the Bombay and Madras provinces, his nomination made by the court of directors would in future be subject to the approval of a council of four appointed by the crown. Initially, the council consisted of Lieutenant General Sir John Clavering, the Honorable Sir George Monson, Sir Richard Barwell, and Sir Philip Francis. Hastings was entrusted with the power of peace and war. British judges and magistrates would also be sent to India to administer the legal system. The Governor General and the Council would have complete legislative powers. The company was allowed to maintain its virtual monopoly over trade in exchange for the menial sum and was obligated to export a minimum quantity of goods yearly to Britain. The cost of administration were to be met by the company. The company initially welcomed these provisions, but the annual burden of the payment contributed to the steady decline of its finances. The East India Company's Act of 1784 has two key aspects. Relationship to the British government. The bill differentiated the East India Company's political functions from its commercial activities. In political matters, the East India Company was subordinate to the British government directly. To accomplish this, the Act created a Board of Commissioners for the Affairs of India, usually referred to as the Board of Control. The members of the Board were the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Secretary of State, and four Privy Councillors nominated by the King. The Act specified that the Secretary of State shall preside at and be president of the said board. Internal Administration of British India. The bill laid the foundation for the centralized and bureaucratic British administration of India, which would reach its peak at the beginning of the 20th century during the Governor Generalship 
of George Nathaniel Curzon, First Baron Curzon. The Pitt Act was deemed a failure because it quickly became apparent that the boundaries between government control and the company's powers were nebulous and highly subjective. The government felt obliged to respond to humanitarian calls for better treatment of local peoples in British-occupied territories. Edmund Burke, a former East Indian Company shareholder and diplomat, was moved to address the situation and introduced a new regulating bill in 1783. The bill was defeated amid lobbying by company loyalists and accusations of nepotism in the bill's recommendation for the appointment of counselors. The Act of 1786 enacted the demand of Earl Cornwallis that the powers of the Governor General be enlarged to empower him, in special cases, to override the majority of his council and to act on his own special responsibility. The Act enabled the offices of the Governor General and the Commander-in-Chief to be held jointly by the same official. This act clearly demarcated borders between the Crown and the East Indian Company. After this point, the company functioned as a regularized subsidy of the Crown, with greater accountability for its actions and reached a stable stage of expansion and consolidation. Having temporarily achieved a state of truce with the Crown, the East Indian Company continued to expand its influence to nearby territories through threats and coerce actions. By the middle of the 19th century, the Company's rule extended across most of India, Burma, Malaya, Singapore, and British Hong Kong and a fifth of the world's population was under its trading influence. In addition, Penang, one of the states in Malaya, became the fourth most important settlement, a presidency of the company's Indian territories. The East Indian Company's charter was renewed for another 20 years by the Charter Act of 1793. In contrast with the legislative proposals of the previous two decades, the 1793 Act was not particularly controversial and made only minimal change to the system of government in India and to British oversight of the company's activities. The East Indian Company Act of 1813, also known as the Charter Act, the aggressive policies of Lord Wesley and the Marquis de Hastings led to the company gaining control of all of India, except for the Punjab and Sindh, and some part of the then 
Kingdom of Nepal under the Sugali Treaty. The Indian princes has become vassals of the company, but the expense of wars leading to the total control of India strained the company's finances. The company was forced to petition Parliament for assistance. This was the background for the Charter Act of 1813, which, among other things, asserted the sovereignty of the British Crown over the Indian territories held by the company, renewed the charter of the company for another 20 years, but deprived the company of its Indian trade monopoly except for the trade in tea and the trade with China. It also required the company to maintain separate and distinct its commercial and territorial accounts. And finally, open India to missionaries. The Industrial Revolution in Britain, the constant search for markets, and the rise of laissez-faire economic ideology formed the background to the Government at India Act 1833. The act removed the company's remaining trade monopolies and diversified it of all its commercial functions. Renewed for another 20 years, the company's political and administrative authority invested the Board of Control with full power and authority over the company, as stated by Professor Suri Ram Sharma. The president of the Board of Control now became Minister for Indian Affairs, carried further the ongoing process of administrative centralization through investing the Governor General and Council with full power and authority to superintend and control the presidency, governments, and all civil and military manners. Initiated a machinery for the codification of laws. Provided that no Indian subject of the company would be debarred from holding any office under the company by reason of his religion, place of birth, descent, or color vested the island of St. Helena in the crown. British influence continued to expand. In 1845, Great Britain purchased the Danish colony of Tranquilbar. The company had, at various stages, extended its influence to China, the Philippines, and Java. It had solved the critical lack of cash needed to buy tea by exporting Indian-grown opium to China. China's efforts to end the trade led to the first opium wars. The English Education Act by the Council of India in 1835 reallocated funds from East India Company to be spent on education and literature in India. The Government of India Act 1853 
This act provided that British India would remain under the administration of the East India Company in trust for the Crown until Parliament should decide otherwise. It also introduced a system of open competition as the basis of recruitment for civil servants of the company and thus deprived the directors of their patronage system. Under the Act, for the first time, the legislative and executive powers of the Governor General's Council were separated. It also added six additional members to the Governor General's Executive Committee. The Indian Rebellion of 1857. The Indian Rebellion of 1857 was a major, but ultimately unsuccessful uprising in India in 1857 and 1858 against British rule. For nearly 100 years, that rule had been presided over by the British East India Company, which had functioned as a sovereign power on behalf of the British Crown. The rebellion began on May 10, 1857, in the form of a mutiny of sepoys of the company's arm in the garrison town of Meerut, 40 miles northeast of Delhi. It then erupted into other mutinies and civilian rebellions, chiefly in the upper Gangetic Plain and central India, through incidents of revolt also occurred farther north and east. The rebellion posed a considerable threat to British power in that region and was contained only with the rebels' defeat in Gwalior on June 20, 1858. On November 1, 1858, the British granted amnesty to all rebels not involved in murder though they did not declare the hostilities formally to have ended until July 8, 1859. The rebellion is also known by many names, including Sepoy Mutiny, the Indian Mutiny, the Great Rebellion, the Revolt of 1857, the Indian Insurrection, and India's first war of independence. The Indian Rebellion was fed by resentments born of diverse perceptions, including invasive British-style social reforms, harsh land taxes, summary treatment of some rich landowner and princess, as well as skepticism about the improvements brought about by British rule. Many Indians did rise against the British, however. Very many also fought for the British, and the majority remained seemingly complying to British rule. Violence, which sometimes betrayed exceptional cruelty, was inflicted on both sides on British officers and civilians, including women and children, by the rebels, and on the rebels and their supporters, including sometimes entire villages, by British reprisals. 
The cities of Delhi and Lucknow were laid waste in the fighting and the British retaliation. After the outbreak of the mutiny in Meerut, the rebels very quickly reached Delhi, whose 81-year-old Mughal re- ruler, Bandur Shah Safar, they declared the emperor of Hindustan. Soon, the rebels had also captured large tracts of northwestern provinces and Awad. The East Indian Company's response came rapidly as well. With help from reinforcements, Kanpur was retaken by mid-July 1857 and Delhi by the end of September. However, it took the remainder of 1857 and the better part of 1858 for the rebellion to be suppressed in Jhansi, Lucknow, and especially the Awad countryside. Other regions of company-controlled India, Bengal province, the Bombay presidency, and the Madras presidency remained largely calm. In the Punjab, the Sikh princes crucially helped the British by providing both soldiers and support. The large princely states, Hyderabad, Mysore, Travancore, and Kashmir, as well as the smaller ones of Rajputana, did not join the rebellion. Serving the British in the Governor General Lord Canning's word as breakwaters in a storm. In some regions, most notably in Awada, the rebellion took on the attributes of patriotic revolt against the European presence. However, the rebel leaders proclaimed no articles of faith that presaged a new political system. Even so, the rebellion proved to be an important watershed in Indian and British Empire history. It led to the dissolution of the East Indian Company and forced the British to reorganize the army, the financial system, and the administration of India through passage of the Government of India Act 1858. India was thereafter administered directly by the British government in the new British Raj. On November 1st, 1858, Queen Victoria issued a proclamation to Indians, which, while lacking the authority of a constitutional provision, promised rights similar to those of other British subjects. In the following decades, when admission to these rights was not always forthcoming, Indians were pointedly referred to the Queen's proclamation in growing avowals of a new nationalism. The East Indian Company's headquarters in London, from which much of the Indian continent was governed was East India House in Leadenhall Street. After occupying premises in Philpot Lane from 1600 to 1621, in Crosby House in Bishopgate from 1621 to 1638, 
and in Leadenhall Street from 1638 to 1648. The company moved to Craven House, an Elizabethan mansion in Leadenhall Street. The building had become known as the East India House by 1661. It was completely rebuilt and enlarged in 1726 through 1729 and further significantly remodeled and expanded in 1796. It was finally vacated in the year 1860 and demolished in 1862. The site is now occupied by the Lloyds Building. In 1607, the company decided to build its own ships and leased a yard on the River Thames at Deptford. By 1614, the yard having become too small, an alternative site was acquired at Blackwall. A new yard was fully operational by 1617. It was sold in 1656, although for some years, East India Company ships continued to be built and repaired there under the new owners. The 1803, an act of parliament promoted by the East India Company, established the East India Dock Company with the aim of establishing a new set of docks, the East India Docks, primarily for the use of ships trading with India. The existing Brunswick Dock, part of the Black Yard, Blackwall Yard site became the export dock, while the new import dock was built to the north. In 1838, the East India Dock Company merged with the West India Dock Company. The docks were taken over by the Port Authority of London in 1909 and closed in 1967. The East India Company had a long-lasting impact on the Indian subcontinent with both positive and harmful effects. Although dissolved the following the rebellion of 1857, it stimulated the growth of the British Empire. Its armies were to become the armies of the British India after 1857 and it played a key role in introducing English as an official language in India. The East India Company was the first company to record the Chinese usage of orange-flavored tea, which led to the development of Earl Grey tea. The East India Company introduced a system of merit-based appointments that provided a model for the British and Indian civil service. Widespread corruption and looting of Bengal resources and the treasuries during this rule resulted in poverty. Famines such as the Great Bengal Famine of 1770 and the subsequent famines during the 18th and 19th century became more widespread chiefly because of the exploitive agriculture promulgated by the policies of the East India Company and the forced cultivation 
of opium in place of grain. The East Indian Club in London was formed in 1849 for officers of the company. The club still exists today as a private gentleman's club with its clubhouse situated at 16 St. James Square, London. Your journey is now ending. the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.